All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of October 15th, 2022. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And how bitterly disappointing to find that Evo Morales has gone full tanky, it appears. He did a tweet on... um, October 7th, wishing Vladimir Putin a happy birthday with a photo of the two of them, Evo Morales and Vladimir Putin, shaking hands. It read, Muchas felicidades al hermano presidente de Rusia, Vladimir Putin, en el día de sus cumpleaños. Los pueblos dignos, libres y antiimperialistas acompañan su lucha contra el intervencionismo armado de los Estados Unidos y la OTAN. El mundo encontrará paz cuando los Estados Unidos deje de atentar contra la vida. Or, as it was rendered in the English on Twitter, Congratulations to the President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, on his birthday, the dignified, free, and anti-imperialist peoples accompany his fight against the armed interventionism of the U.S. and NATO. The world will find peace when the U.S. stops killing people. End quote. This, as Russia, is raining down death on Ukraine and evidently carrying out massacres of the civil population. Don't tell me that red-brown politics, the notion of a left-fascist convergence, isn't a thing. On the contrary, it is hegemonic. Evo Morales, on the same side as Viktor Orban and Tucker Carlson. How much more blatant does it have to get? Here's another tweet, this one from the... um, state-sponsored Iran International English. There was some controversy about this one, happily, as we shall see. Quoting Bolivia's ambassador to Tehran, quote, Our government condemns the recent riots in Iran, which are orchestrated by the British and American Zionists. We are sure all problems will be resolved through solidarity and the wisdom of the dear leader of Iran, end quote. Yeah, I just actually read the verbatim. Now, um, happily, the Bolivian ambassador to Tehran, Romina Perez Ramos, replied on Twitter, accusing Iran International English of distorting her remarks and actually referred to the, quote, feminist protests, end quote, in Iran, which is heartening. And I applaud Romina Perez-Ramos for that statement. But Evo Morales tweeted on September 26th, just when the protests were catching fire across Iran, quote, although Iran recovered control over its resources, it again is the victim of the imperialist siege. This quote was rendered in English. <clears throat> Continuing with the quote, Bolivia rejects 
unilateral actions imposed by the U.S. against that brotherly country. We condemn the U.S. excuses to impose its policy of interference and intervention, end quote. Now, this was in a thread about nuclear proliferation, and it isn't entirely clear that Evo was referring to the protests as part of the imperialist siege and policy of interference and intervention, but not mentioning the protests at all is problematic enough, as is referring to Iran as a brotherly country, meaning, of course, a brotherly government, a government which was at that very moment, September 26th, massacring protesters in the streets. This from a Bolivian government, that of Evo's party, the movement toward socialism, that came to power on the back of Campesino protest and uprising. How do you square it, Evo Morales? Now, I actually interviewed Evo back in 2003, right after the so-called Gas War, a popular uprising led by Aymara Campesinos on the Altiplano against a gas pipeline then planned across Bolivia by a U.S.-led consortium, including the even then already disgraced company Enron, if you remember them. And Evo was at that time a uh, leader of the social movement in Bolivia and a lawmaker in the Chamber of Deputies the lower house of Bolivia's Congress. And I interviewed him in his office in the halls of the Chamber of Deputies in La Paz immediately after the uprising and repression of that year, 2003. And it was this affair that really put Evo Morales on the trajectory to becoming Bolivia's president, which he did in 2006, three years later. And the compromise president who was ousted in the 2003 uprising, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, known by the nickname Goni, now faces genocide charges in Bolivia over the killing of 63 protesters during the uprising. He remains at large in the United States, which refuses to extradite. 63 protesters. Over 200 have now been killed by the security forces in the current uprising in Iran. What are you thinking, Evo Morales? If Goni is guilty of genocide, certainly Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi and Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei are as well. Now, yeah, U.S. imperialism has committed plenty of ghastly crimes all over the planet, not least of which in South America, supporting genocidal regimes, including past ones in Bolivia. But Evo has completely squandered his credibility to protest this when he's loaning propaganda cover for equivalent crimes now being carried out by the dictatorships in Russia and Iran. So disappointing. But Evo was Bolivia's head of state and remains the political patriarch of the ruling party. And you can understand why he feels that he has to play the game. The great 
power game, throwing in his lot with the Imperial bloc that is rival to the one that directly threatens his country. Exactly like the Ukrainians, I will point out. But do we, do we, rank-and-file progressive forces around the world, do we have to play this game? Now, these are examples of what we've called the um, hard pro-Russia position on the international left. But the more insidious, soft Russia abetting position has become the de facto consensus on the so-called left, certainly in the United States. Democracy Now! on October 3rd featured yet again an interview with Noam Chomsky, this time with um, his most recent co-author, Vijay Prashad, tellingly entitled Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad on Ukraine, Why U.S. Must Negotiate with Russia, end quote. Did you catch that? Why U.S. Must Negotiate with Russia? Not even Ukraine, but the U.S., essentially calling for the great powers to talk over the heads of the Ukrainians and decide their future without their participation. So sickening. Democracy Now! on October 12th featured Medea Benjamin in a segment entitled Negotiations Still the Only Way Forward to End Ukraine War in which she bashes the Democrats for approving military aid packages to Ukraine and applauds that, quote, it's being questioned by Donald Trump, who says that if he were president, this war wouldn't happen. He would have probably talked to Putin, which is right, end quote. Yeah, she actually said that, lauding Trump as some kind of peacenik, as Chomsky has also done, as we discussed on our podcast of May 21st. And uh, if you've noticed, Chomsky and Medea Benjamin and Donald Trump are actually joined in precisely this position now by Elon Musk, who has been similarly lecturing the Ukrainians that they must cede territory in exchange for peace, quote-unquote. <clears throat> if you've noted the headlines of recent days. And all this talk of a diplomatic solution is so deeply condescending to the Ukrainians and just flat-out reality-denying. Russia is massacring Ukrainians in all territory it has occupied and has just annexed 15% of Ukrainian territory and stated that its return is not open to negotiation. What are the Ukrainians supposed to negotiate? Whether they lose 15% of their territory with its population genocided or 100%? Maddening. But for a little contrast with these bankrupt and compromised pseudo-left positions, Let's take a look at what some rad left and particularly anarchist voices 
from within the region, have to say. As we noted on the Counter Vortex Daily Report earlier this week, the British anarchist journal Freedom features an interview October 4th with Ukraine's Revolutionary Confederation of Anarcho-Syndicalists, RKAS, let's render it RKAS, challenging the hegemony of Russian propaganda on the supposed anti-war left in the West. Entitled, the interview was entitled, Leftists Outside Ukraine Are Used to Listening Only to People from Moscow. End quote. Two longtime RCAS militants are interviewed. Anatoly Dubovic, born in Russia, but now living in Dnipro, and Sergei Chevchenko from Donetsk, but forced to relocate to Kiev after the Russian-backed separatists seized power in the Donbass region. Both have been involved in protests against the Ukrainian government's gutting of labor protections and other so-called neoliberal reforms, but they strenuously reject the flirtation between elements of the international left and the authoritarian Donbass separatists and their Russian sponsors, and they especially protest Western lecturing to Ukrainians that they must negotiate, quote-unquote, which inevitably means ceding territory to Russia in exchange for peace. They state, these seem to be composite quotes attributed to the both of them, Dubovik and Shevchenko, probably done by email, I would imagine. They state, quote, the compromise you are talking about, ceding part of the territory in order to maintain the sovereignty of the rest of Ukraine, is impossible. It's not even that surrendering a few million Ukrainians to Putin's fascist regime would be treason. You see, today's Russia has long shown its inability to peacefully coexist with the neighboring countries it has chosen as its victims. This was evident in the two colonial wars in the Caucasus. In the 1990s, the Chechen people inflicted a serious defeat on the Russian army, and the Russian government agreed to peace. The following years were spent preparing for a new invasion of unruly Chechnya. And when a new, even more powerful force was assembled, the Russian army started all over again. A reference, of course, to the Second Chechen War of 1999, which consolidated Vladimir Putin's grip on power. Continuing from the text, Ukrainian society remembers these events and knows that the only guarantee for peace will be the complete defeat of the Russian army, the destruction of the Putin regime. End quote. And of course, they harshly reject the notion that Russia must be supported in the name of opposing Western imperialism. Quote, Russia's geopolitical goal is not at all to stop Western imperialism, but to make Russia an empire again, more powerful, aggressive, and inhuman than the conventional West. The Russian state, having suppressed freedom and independence at home, 
cannot bring any freedom and independence to other countries. The pro-Russian left, left in quotation marks, does not see this. To use the analogy of George Orwell's novel, 1984, such leftist, quote-unquote, side with the big brother of Eurasia against the big brother of Oceania. Such leftists, quote-unquote, are idiots, end quote. And Dubavik and Shevchenko note that um, our cast members are currently fighting on the front line in eastern Ukraine as members of the territorial defense units. And uh, back on May 26th, the Russian anarchist group Autonomous Action, whose website amazingly appears to actually still be online, perhaps it's actually um, you know hosted from outside Russia, ran a piece entitled Misconceptions About Imperialism, taking note of how campism on the international left is undercutting solidarity with Ukraine. This is a very important insight here. Listen, quote, the left in Greece, the Balkan countries, and Latin America have had very bitter experiences with the United States and NATO. In these areas, there is little understanding for relying on the Western camp against other enemies. But there are no universal situations or universal hierarchies of oppression, where at the core of all oppression there is capitalism and the enemy in each struggle is the United States. If you are gay in Chechnya and get discovered you will be murdered without capitalism being involved. In this situation, patriarchal homophobia would be a more acute problem than capitalism. The war in Ukraine is not an inevitable consequence of capitalism. The main reason is the twisted understanding of reality by a single person, meaning, of course, Vladimir Putin. Capitalism would have been doing just as successful, probably even more so, without the war in Ukraine. Left approaches have also been defined by a fear of nuclear war. For example, according to Chomsky, the best way to handle Putin's hatred of the West would be to offer him some countries as a buffer zone, as anything else could lead to nuclear war. But these kinds of solutions have problems. For example, the most obvious one being that Chomsky is not about to ask the people living in his planned buffer zones if they would agree to this. Furthermore, easy victories and submission usually do not decrease the appetites of those blinded by their power, but instead increase it. I would not like to be in a situation to choose between submission to Hitler and nuclear war. This is one more reason why we should aim to overthrow Putin instead of appeasing him, end quote. Very refreshing, and quite a contrast from Chomsky and Medea Benjamin and Elon Musk, eh? Now, there are a few points that I could take issue here with these um, statements from Ukrainian and Russian anarchists. Autonomous Action writes, quote, the war in Ukraine is not an inevitable consequence of capitalism, end quote. Well, perhaps not inevitable, but 
I actually do think it is a consequence of capitalism with the failure of globalization and the world falling back again into rival capitalist blocks, as argued by the Ukrainian socialist Yulia Yurchenko in her book, Ukraine and the Empire of Capital, discussed on our podcast of June 25th. And Arkas writes, quote, Russia's geopolitical goal is not at all to stop Western imperialism, end quote. Well, yes, it is, actually, but only to advance its own imperial ambitions, which is no better. And for the peoples of Eastern and Central Europe, at least, quite a bit worse. And if they, the peoples of countries that have been repeatedly invaded and occupied by Russia over the past century and change, the Ukrainians, the Poles, the peoples of the Baltic republics, the Czechs, if they have illusions about the West, it is for similar reasons that the leaders, at least, of Bolivia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, and Serbia have illusions about Russia. Serbia, of course, having been bombed by NATO in 1999 and being one of the few countries in Eastern Europe that looks to Russia for protection against the West instead of the other way around. And addressing the hard pro-Russia position, the campist position, so to speak, and how people on the left get taken in and why it is total BS. Here's an interesting juxtaposition of tweets from Russian state sources over the past couple of weeks. The first one openly playing to anti-imperialist sentiment from the Twitter account of the Russian Foreign Ministry on October 7th, quoting President Vladimir Putin, quote, the West is ready to cross every line to preserve the neo-colonial system. They do not give a damn about the rights of billions of people. We are fighting for a just and free path. The collapse of Western hegemony is irreversible, end quote. But various Russian embassies around the world have been making note that 2022 marks 350 years since the birth of Peter the Great. And the most recent such tweet was on um, October 9th from the Russian embassy in Brunei, noting that a reception and photo exhibit was held at the embassy Quote, on the occasion of the 350th anniversary of Peter the Great, end quote. Peter the Great, who made Russia an imperial power in open emulation of the West and conquered much territory that had never before been under Russian rule, principally in the Baltics. Come on, folks, I'll say it again. The Russian Empire was an empire. That's why it was called the Russian Empire. Its fundamental structures paradoxically survived the Russian Revolution through Moscow's hegemony over the other Soviet Socialist Republics. Its imperial reach went beyond the borders of the USSR under Stalin and then went global under Khrushchev. There was a massive contraction after the Soviet collapse. But Putin is now rebuilding the empire with revanchist and fascist ambitions. 
any equivocation on the reality of Russian imperialism and its current aggressive posture is a historical denialist bunk. Russia is not fighting against the neo-colonial system. It is fighting to reestablish its own neo-colonial order at a minimum over much of Eastern Europe and the Middle East, with the Bashar Assad dictatorship having been shored up in power by massive Russian military intervention and reduced to a vassal state of Moscow. Now, I'm not sure that I agree at this point that it is possible to take a neither-nor position vis-a-vis Russia and the West, as autonomous action implies. Even ARCAS acknowledges that their comrades are fighting in the Territorial Defense Units, Ukraine's military reserve force, which means that they are, however indirectly, getting Western military aid. Just as, I will point out, the Rojava Kurds are in their fight against ISIS. And just as the Spanish Republicans desperately sought in 1936 military aid from the West generally, but were betrayed by the world. So I don't know if a neither-nor position is still possible. If you had asked me right up to February 24th, I'd have said, neither East nor West, disband NATO, U.S. out of Europe. That's the politics I have dedicated my life to. But in the current world situation, I am no longer sure that it's possible. And I am certainly not going to protest U.S. military aid to Ukraine. No fucking way. And I'll point out that the notion that Putin will be appeased, so forthrightly shot down by Arkas, is also deflated with much the same arguments by former Ukrainian defense minister Andriy Zagorodnyuk, writing in Foreign Affairs, the semi-official organ of the Western policy elite, on October 12th, in a piece entitled Ukraine's Path to Victory, How the Country Can Take Back All Its Territory. From the text, many Western observers believe that Ukraine will have to cede territory to Russia if it wants peace. They are wrong. Territorial gains will only embolden the Kremlin. Putin decided to attack eastern Ukraine in 2014 because he succeeded in occupying Crimea. He invaded the entire country because he managed to establish proxy puppet regimes in the Donbass. Partial success simply motivates Putin to continue his campaigns and seize more territory. The only way to stop the war and to deter future aggression is for the invasion to end with an unequivocal Russian failure. End quote. And yeah, I understand the risks of nuclear escalation that go along with this position. But could we please have some acknowledgement of the risks of nuclear escalation that go along with the pro-appeasement position. Okay? Going to quote again from the same piece in Foreign Affairs by Andrei Zagorodnyuk. Quote, what the West should not and cannot do is be cowed by Russia's nuclear blackmail. 
if the West stops aiding Ukraine because it fears for consequences, nuclear states will find it much easier to impose their will on non-nuclear ones in the future. If Russia orders a nuclear strike and gets away with it, nuclear states will have almost automatic permission to invade lesser powers. In either scenario, the result will be widespread proliferation. Even poorer countries will plow their resources into nuclear programs, and for an understandable reason. It will be the only sure way to guarantee their sovereignty. End quote. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Noam Chomsky. And what I share unequivocally with these statements from Arcas and Autonomous Action and Andrei Zagorodnik alike is the admonishment to those of us here in the West not to engage in the imperial narcissism of thinking that you can talk over the heads of the Ukrainians, that the great powers can reach some solution without the participation of the Ukrainians which was precisely the condescending attitude that Neville Chamberlain had vis-a-vis the Czechs in the 1938 Munich Agreement, which is not remembered very positively by history, if you get my damn drift. And finally, I will point out that exactly this was said by none other than President Joe Biden in an interview with CNN on Putin's nuclear threats in Ukraine on October 11th, where Biden said that the guiding principle should be, quote, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, end quote. A sentiment I heartily second. And look, don't blame me if Joe Biden is taking a more progressive position than Noam Chomsky. Not my fault. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. We need your support to keep going. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.